For locals, it was just another day in the office. Well, locals was a loose term. Few had been born here. Most were drawn to this place later in life. All it had taken was a quick, quick visit and the magical charm of the location had sucked them in. The vibrance of the location, the ocean, the scenery. It was impossible to leave. And so they had relocated, made a new life for themselves, switched gears and careers and found ways to make a living sharing their slice of paradise with the never ending stream of visitors. It might be another day in the office, but what an office. It was paradise, the blue waters of the Pacific, the imposing spectacle of the island, the splendid lines of this cruise ship anchored offshore, and the prospect of showing this awesome dozing giant to another bunch of eager tourists, keen to hear the history, to see the evidence of the powerful forces of nature at work. The giant was dozing, but there were rumblings. Almost 20 years earlier, the landscape had been transformed when the giant briefly roared to life. More recently, three times in the last seven years, the giant had coughed. And only two weeks ago, the earth had shaken as if the giant had stirred in his sleep. But this was a benign giant, a giant who was being carefully monitored by those who knew how to interpret the smallest sign. The 9th of December 2019 was just another day in the office for the staff of White Island Tours as they welcomed another load of tourists from the ovation of the seas to paradise. Just another day in paradise until 2.11 p.m. when the volcano exploded with a fury from which there was no escape. The ash rose 3.7 kilometers into the air. There had been 47 people on White Island at that moment. Only 25 survived and only three managed to escape serious injury. Unless you're a New Zealander or have visited the Bay of Plenty or sailed on the ovation of the seas, the tragedy of that day, not yet two years ago, has probably faded completely from your mind. We're fascinated by tragedy. We want to learn everything we can about it, but we live our lives as if we're immune. It will never happen to us or at least certainly not today. Jesus was under no such illusion. As David helpfully pointed out to us just over a month when we were last, ago when we were last in Luke, Jesus was on his final journey to Jerusalem, fully aware of what lay ahead of him. With the looming cross on his mind and his focus fixed on preparing his disciples for what lay ahead. Luke records a couple of conversations about the future. The first takes place with the Pharisees, the students of the law who were confident that they knew everything there was to know about the requirements 
of the holy and unapproachable God. They had searched the scriptures, pondered its most obscure passages. They knew with absolute confidence that the current season of judgment on God's people would end with the triumphant arrival of God's promised Messiah, who would restore David's throne and restore God's people to their rightful place of preeminence amongst the people of the world. And so they asked Jesus for his take on the course of history. When will this much-awaited day arrive? Is it imminent? Do they need to wait a few more years? Will it be in the lifetime of their children? Or must they continue to wait for generations to come? They wanted a date, a time, something definitive to allow them to prepare. Something like my being able to tell my grandchildren with great assurance that Haley's Comet will return in 2061 and that it will be much better viewing than the disappointing uh, only occurrence that occurred in my lifetime in 1986, because the next time it will be on the same side of the sun as the earth. But if the Pharisees couldn't get a year, at least they wanted an unmistakable historical indicator so that they would be able to know and be able to say, I told you so when it came. The conversation was brief, just two verses. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. You've been looking hard, Jesus says, trying to decipher the clues of scripture and match them to the times we're in. You're prepared to put in the hard yards, but you know what? You've missed it. It's already here. It's already here because the king you claim to be looking for is standing right in front of you and you're completely oblivious to the fact you're so obsessed with the details that you've missed the obvious. It's not the first time we've heard this answer. Ten chapters earlier, back in Luke, we read Jesus, John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had had diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The evidence of the king, that the king had come, was plain to see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. The message is clear. If you're looking for the kingdom of God, the place you must begin with is Jesus. You'll never recognize the kingdom unless you first recognize the king. And everyone who recognizes the king has already seen the kingdom of God. They've seen his power to transform and save, his authority to speak in God's name, his holiness, his righteousness, his wisdom, his insight, his mercy and grace. Unless you've recognized Jesus for who he is, the son of God, God himself who lived amongst us, living the life of obedience that we should have lived, showing the love, kindness, generosity and mercy we should show. The son of God who, blameless and pure, took the punishment that we deserved and died in our place so that we might live and rise with him. Unless you see that, everything else I have to say today will be have no value at all for you. Because unless you recognize that the kingdom has come and is amongst us, you'll always be unprepared for its ultimate revelation at the end of time. But having said that to the Pharisees who were looking with unseeing eyes, Jesus turns to the disciples, knowing that this unspoken question is on their hearts as well, and that it will burn with even greater intensity in the years to come as they and we wait in anticipation for the risen king, now seated in glory at the right hand of the Father in heaven, to return, not as the sacrificial servant of his first incarnation, but this time clothed in glory and majesty so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These disciples would be the first residents of our world citizens of the kingdom of God that is with us, but is yet to be revealed in all its glory and authority. They, like us, and especially like the persecuted church today, would live through times of strife and difficulty and persecution, face governments and civil authorities bent on their destruction, face the ridicules of those who laugh at the gospel, and pour scorn on their hope and our hope. And like us, they would ask, how long, O Lord, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And Jesus' answer 
to their and our unspoken question is at first glance not that helpful. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. If the disciples had understood it, and they didn't, Jesus was giving something away. But the kingdom in all its glory would not be revealed until after the crucifixion. But it's clear from the disciples' reaction to the arrest and crucifixion that at this time, Jesus' words went completely over their heads. They'd heard it enough for it to stick in their hearts and minds, enough for it to find its way into Luke's gospel. But they, like us, could only begin to understand it on the other side of the cross. For them and us, Jesus' clear-eyed understanding of his role as the sacrificial lamb is reassurance that the salvation narrative that began in the Garden of Eden, that was made clearer in the covenant with Abraham, that was set in motion by God's rescue of his people from Egypt, affirmed by the entry into the promised land and revealed through the words of the prophet, that this salvation narrative had not been derailed at the cross. No, it had been fulfilled at the cross with the promise of, his, of its ultimate fulfillment, sealed by the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, the apostles, the early church, and ultimately to every generation of believers, right down to us. And yet they waited. And we wait. And we wonder if what we are seeing today in the world is the harbinger of his return. It's the hot button topic for many in the church and has been in every generation. It's easy to find people who will interpret the signs of the times for you. The turning of the millennium, the first one and the second one the rise of the British Empire, the establishment of the modern state of Israel, the formation of a 10-member European community, the election of Donald Trump. They've all convinced many that the return of Christ was days, weeks, months, one or two years at best away. And after the advent of publishing, they've made them and their publishers wealthy. But if we listen to Jesus, his message is clear. However fine-sounding and persuasive the argument, don't believe it. Because the coming of his kingdom in all its glory and power and authority and righteousness and judgment won't need any announcement. It won't need a press release or a spectacular television launch event. 
it will be sudden, unmistakable, and at a time that is totally unexpected. Everyone on earth will know firsthand as they see his glory with their own eyes and as they stand before the judgment seat. But, Jesus says, don't fall off the other side of the horse either. If one danger is being misled by every false teacher who claims to know the date and the day of Jesus' return, the other is to live without regard for Jesus' return in the comfortable but unsafe uncertainty that it's nothing to be concerned with, a distant event that I can disregard with impunity. Jesus likens his return to two instances of judgment in the Old Testament. In Genesis 6, God had directed Noah to build an enormous ark so that he and his immediate family, along with birds and animals of every kind, might be saved from the coming judgment. There were detailed instructions on the ark, its construction and dimensions and provisioning, but not a word about when. We have no idea how long Noah laboured at the construction of the ark, but we do know that he was 600 years old when God gave him seven days' notice to load all the animals, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives into the ark before the Lord shut the door of the ark and opened the floodgates of heaven. People might have wondered at the enormous vessel that Noah was constructing. The appearance of exotic animals uh, at the construction site probably made the lead story on the seven o'clock news bulletin, but it was a curiosity something to laugh at, a distraction from the enjoyment of life, the pursuit of pleasure, prosperity, and prestige. There was no regard for the coming judgment as people ate, drank, married, and were given in marriage. And the result was their utter destruction. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is only slightly different. Again, God is acting in righteous judgment against great wickedness. And yet, at Abraham's urging, God seeks out the one resident of those cities who had not sunk to the lowest depths of depravity to rescue him and his family from fire and sulfur of judgment raining down from heaven. The residents of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have a care in the world. They were oblivious to the outcry their wickedness was raising in heaven. They were getting on with life, eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. The fruits of success and unbridled pleasures were the only things on their mind. Lot and most of his family escaped the judgment by the skin of their teeth. And yet, even the divine imperative to flee and not look back was not enough to dissuade Lot's wife from taking one last glance at the life she had known. It will be like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. 
on that day. No one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus' point is quite simple. There's no point in making plans for what you will do on the day when he returns. The tourists and guides on White Island might have had a volcanic activity evacuation plan. But when their digital watches advanced from 2.10 p.m. to 2.11 p.m., the pace of events was such that those plans became irrelevant. The only thing that was relevant was their position immediately prior to the eruption, whether they were in a place of some relative safety or exposed to face the full fury of the eruption. And so it will be when Jesus returns. When the lightning flashes and when the trumpet sounds, the period of God's gracious forbearance will have ceased and we will stand before him as we are. Those who on that day stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ will be saved. Those who are not will perish. This is the consistent warning to us all throughout Luke. Back in chapter 12, we read, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And in chapter 13, we read, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you have come from. The consistent message from Jesus is the scouting motto, be prepared. 
There is nothing to be gained from trying to ascertain the time of Jesus's return with a view to living our lives in the light of that knowledge. Rather, Jesus calls us to live our lives in the knowledge that he, the king, is already amongst us, that everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, everything that we've set our heart's desire on is open and transparent before him, understanding that he might return in this very heartbeat. If we hope to stand before him as one of his faithful servants, clothed in his righteousness, pure, holy, blameless, made in the fullness of his image, we must live that way now, today, and tomorrow, and for however long our Heavenly Father gives us breath. Because we do not know the hour, and even if we did, we would not want to stand before him saved by the skin of our teeth, having squandered every opportunity to understand the height and depth of his love, the richness of his grace, the power of his spirit at work in our lives to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. Those who truly know and love the king are faithful, loyal and obedient whenever and wherever they are whether they're watched or unseen, whether they're standing in his immediate presence or are located far from his presence, surrounded by those who have different loyalties and allegiances. Brothers and sisters, as we wait patiently for the day of the Lord, let's all live as faithful followers of our King, obedient to his calling, loving one another, showing mercy and kindness to those around us and by our words, our actions and our hope, calling others into his king, glorious kingdom of life. We don't know the hour, but the hour is coming. May we be found faithful when that trumpet sounds and we behold him face to face. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder in your word today that you are, that your son Jesus will be returning and will be returning as the king in power and in judgment. Heavenly Father, help us to live lives in the light of that. Father, knowing that we might meet you at any moment. But Father, making the most of this time that we have, whether it's long or short, Father, so that we might accomplish the things that you have set before us, that we might take this opportunity, that the time that we have on this earth, to know you better, to learn more of your grace and mercy and love, to build a deeper and more intimate relationship with you and to share the good news of your gospel and the wonderful grace that you have showered upon us 
with those around us so that they too might be found as members of your kingdom when Jesus returns. Amen.